when their history lies hidden in the shadows, they feel misunderstood or worse, they feel that the world has forgotten them. And that's not the case. We just don't know their story. Hi, I'm Sylvia Beckerman. Join me today as I talk to an extraordinary woman who is changing the world by making a difference in her life and the lives of those around her. Hello, I'm Ruta Sepetis, an author of historical fiction. I call myself a seeker of lost stories. Uh, and I am so grateful and excited to be here on Sylvia and Me. Ruta, thank you so much for, for joining me here today. Um, as you said, you're an author of historical fiction, but it's not just historical fiction. You go after underrepresented history, stories that we probably, most of us don't know about unless maybe we have a relative or we're really historians and looking and lived through it and so on and so forth. And we're gonna go into get into your newest book shortly. But what I'd like to do is kind of talk about a little bit of the origin because I understand one of your first books was called The Adventures of Betsy. You were about nine years old and that kind of changed your life, not exactly from writing, but go ahead, tell the story. Oh, you've done your research, Sylvia. Oh my goodness, The Adventures of Betsy. Yes, not many people know about that. Um, but the truth is I wanted to be a writer from the time from the time I was nine years old. And my third grade teacher gave an assignment, um, a creativity assignment, take the expected and make it unexpected. And this was my great chance. I could write a novel. And I wrote The Adventures of Betsy. And I received an A on the assignment. The students loved it. A friend asked if she could take it home. And her mom called my mom and said, have you read The Adventures of Betsy? Because something is seriously wrong with your daughter. Um, and long story short, The Adventures of Betsy became a banned book in third grade. And what child, what human being wants to be at the center of an enduring drama? And it stole my courage, Sylvia. I, I you know, swore I would never write a book. And do you know that for 20 years, I didn't, I didn't write another book because of my band adventure with Betsy. <laughs> In fact, you went into a totally different industry. I, I did. And what's interesting is at that time, as a young girl at nine years old, I perceived that that experience with the book being banned as a failure so much so that I thought, well, goodness, you know, I wanted to be a writer. Now, what do I do? And I pivoted and I, I loved music. And so I pursued music and realized fairly early on that I did not have the goods, the talent, you know, to be a vocalist or a performer myself. So I, uh, my degrees are in international finance and international management. And I moved to Hollywood. Um, and for 22 years, I worked in storytelling, but in music. I mean, a, a song is a three minute story. That's right. It is. It, it is. And if you think about it, you know, there's a beginning, a middle and end. There are characters in these songs. And I was helping songwriters and producers and rock bands and film composers tell stories through music. And I did that for over 20 years and realized quickly that when we put an element of our own story, our own personal truth into our work, 
it's much more resonant and therefore it was much more likely to become successful. So I was asking these songwriters, what's your story? And one day they asked me, they said, Hey, Sepetis, what's your story? And I told them I was Lithuanian and no one knew what that meant. <laughs> no one knew what that meant. They said, with all due respect, you know, we don't know what that means to be Lithuanian. And that's when I really thought, wow, what if I did go down this path and investigate? What does it really mean to have an underrepresented story? Could I give voice to initially just thinking I would give voice to my own culture and, and history? And now it has just blossomed into something much bigger than that. Now, you actually went to Lithuania. You were you were born in Michigan, but your father, I believe, is a refugee from Lithuania. And you went and uh, accompanied him on a trip to Lithuania. How did that impact what you wound up doing? Well, initially, um, when Lithuania regained their freedom and my father went back, um, imagine, 50 years had passed. And for many of our extended family members, uh, the regime, Stalin hung over them like a cold shadow. They were very frightened. And initially they didn't share the full story with my father as to what had happened. They were just so grateful to reunite with family. But when I went back to Lithuania on my own, that's when my cousins said, they're not being honest with you and you don't know the full story. And they explained that when my father fled from Lithuania and spent nine years in refugee camps before making it to the United States, that when the Soviet secret police came looking for his, for the family and his relatives, and they couldn't find my father's family, they arrested and deported uh, a dozen of our extended family members to Siberia to labor camps and death camps and gulags. And my father didn't know that story. And I had to go home and share that with my father. And what made an impression on me is that in school, I studied the crimes of Hitler. I didn't study the victims of communism. Uh, and now I found out that that history affected my own family and I wanted to know more about it. Amazing how certain things just all of a sudden, I was going to say fall in our lap. It's just certain events we learn about that we have no idea um, because people didn't talk about them. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I find that for these people, when their history lies hidden in the shadows, they feel misunderstood or worse. They feel that the world has forgotten them. And that's not the case. We just don't know their story. Well, that's it. We don't know their story. And that is so true on so many levels. And what you've done really is bring out some of those hidden stories. And you've done it in a way that um, you do your research and you do really in-depth research. Uh, you do have a new book out, um, I Must Betray You. Uh, how long did it take you to write this book, which we'll talk about and we'll go into what it's about in a couple of minutes, but how long does it take you to actually do the research? Where do you even start? Well, depending on the, the subject that I'm writing about, it takes anywhere from three to seven years. And I know that sounds overwhelming, but I can't tell you how exciting it is. It's 
research to me, swap the word research with investigation. It's like being a historical detective. I get to go in and interview people. And I always start in the same place. I, I read all the nonfiction um, that has come before me. Historical fiction sits on the shoulders of nonfiction. And so I read memoirs and, and testimony, dissertations, academic papers, um, biographies. And that gives me a working base knowledge of the topic that I'm going to write about. And the, re- the other reason I do that is because the next step is to travel to the location where the events I'm writing about took place and to interview true witnesses. And so I really need to do that research before because I, it would be disrespectful to ask them to give me a history lesson um, you know, when I'm interviewing these people. And that allows us then to have really engaging conversations because I, I, although I wasn't there myself, I've researched it and, and I can you know, ask them questions that might prompt reflection. Well, as we just said, your newest book, I Must Betray You, takes place in Romania in 1989. And yes, for some people, it doesn't sound, you know, it's 1989. I mean, you know, is it really that long ago? My son was born in 19, when was he born? 1987 and 1984. So it doesn't really sound that long ago, yet it is history. And it's it's a piece of history that a lot of people don't know. And I want to read something that you um, wrote describing the book. I'm going to read it. Imagine a dark world of enforced obedience. Your electricity and nourishment are controlled and women's fertility belongs to the state. And to ensure that you conform, secret police are tracking you and spying on you through hidden surveillance devices. It sounds dystopian, but this was the maniacal dynasty of dictator Nikolai Ceausescu, I looked that up, how to pronounce it, a regime that more than 20 million Romanians endured while forcibly fenced off from the world. But in 1989, amidst the grip of tyranny, brave young Romanians risked everything for their revolution. And you tell the story through the eyes of a 17-year-old. Okay, how did you even start? Why this particular story and why through a 17-year-old named Christian? Well, I started uh, when I was on tour in Romania for my first novel, Between Shades of Grey. And I was sitting outside with my publisher and translator And because I'm the daughter of a victim of communism, I thought that I had a working knowledge of post-war communist systems. And when I began to ask them about their history, my translator sort of, you know, put up a hand and said, hang on a second. She reached to the center of the table where there was an ashtray outside and she began inspecting it for listening devices. And I said, Dana, what are you doing? (laughs) And she said, well, Ruta, it's a habit, you know, they were listening. They were always listening. And I said, who was listening? And she said, the blue eyed boys. And this story of mass surveillance became, uh, began to to roll out from, from these women that I was sitting with. And I quickly realized I had no idea of what was happening in Romania and how more than 20 million Romanians suffered and endured this dictatorship 
During the fall of communism, the narrative that I remember was the fall of the Berlin Wall. And I realized there's so much more to it. And this particularly evil regime in Romania, I, I just was shocked and I really wanted to write about it. Okay. Um, one of the other things that you've said is killers aren't always assassins. Sometimes they don't even have blood on their hands. Tell us about what you found out that was taking place in Romania and how you wanted to do it through this teenager. Yes. Uh, so Romania was under the dictatorship, as you mentioned, of this maniacal uh, dictator, Nicolae Ceausescu, uh, who was needed to control the population. And to do that, he used a secret police force, the Securitate, and he recruited people as informers. And eventually the goal was to control people through their own fear. And remember, this was during a time when Romania was fenced off from the world. People weren't allowed passports. They couldn't travel freely. They couldn't come and go from the country. The electricity was controlled. The nutrition controlled. I mean, women's bodies belonged to the state. There was a, a tyranny of fertility. Uh, that was going on and, and it was hopeful that every woman would give birth to 10 children. And when I began to research this, I found a cache of files, a, a report about a cache of files that indicated that this regime was so evil that they not only recruited adults to be informers, they recruited children and teenagers, making them promises of, oh, of Oh, you, you have an ill parent. Don't you worry. If you just give me some information, we'll make sure to get medicine that, that will heal your grandparent. This was so evil. And then when I learned that it was the students themselves who were among the most brave in December of 1989, who ran into the streets unarmed and began attacking this weaponry and tanks just with their own bare hands. I knew that I wanted to then tell the story. And as a writer, of course, keep in mind, we're always interested in juxtaposition, right? We, we want that rub. We want to put these opposites, um, you know, facing each other. So we have this, this passionate 17-year-old high school student who wants to be the author of his own destiny up against this maniacal dictator uh, who, who his life, you know, this kid's life means nothing to him you know, who, who will prevail and what will happen. And so that was the approach to it. Okay. And in kind of describing what you just described, um, we're living in a part of what will be history. And we don't know what the history will exactly be um, with Russia and Putin invading Ukraine. Could you have ever imagined that some of what you were writing about, which, of course, you finished the book prior to this taking place not that long ago, the book just came out recently. Tell us how you how how it how it almost feels to see and hear what's going on when you wrote about something not too dissimilar from what Putin is trying to do right now. It's, it's honestly devastating for me, um, knowing and doing so much research about what happened and, and researching 
the playbook, the Soviet playbook that then became, you know, the Russian playbook that then became Putin's playbook, knowing how the Russian people themselves are suffering, um, how they are, are victims. It's so incredibly painful for me that I actually have to try to change the altitude and look at this almost as if I'm researching for a project because it's so, you know, it's so painful also because I, you know, I do bring of course a bias to this because my family members were, were victims of the Soviet regime. So in my mind, I've always carried with me this possibility of what if it's always been in my, in my heart and in my head that this could be possible, even though we don't want it to be possible. But it's happening now during what I've recently reflected, and I wonder what you think about this, in this era of the inconceivable. Um, we've just been through a pandemic, which, you know, which was so inconceivable that right. if that, and, and on a global scale, um, we never, this seemed dystopian. It seemed like a movie, uh, this pandemic. And now to move to such an inconceivable act of war that in some cases, the Ukrainians themselves did not and could not believe this was possible. A week before the invasion, when I, I took part in a briefing with um, a group in Lithuania and I asked some of the young people, what's happening and how are you preparing for this? And they said, you are so paranoid. <laughs> it was literally inconceivable to them. They said, no, this will never happen. Our, our older relatives. So it's painful for me um, that we see this repetition or as Mark Twain called it, this rhyming element of, uh, of history. However, I will say that through my research, um, you know, I, I have the benefit of knowing that there is hope amidst hardship and we can find strength in struggle. Sylvia, you know that. And sometimes amidst the worst, we have a chance to reveal our best and we're seeing that. And I'm hoping that it's inspiring and uniting the world perhaps in a new and unique way. I think it, I, I think it is, I'm hoping it is as you are. The Ukrainian yeah. people um, and, and how they're standing up to the bully as I call him, and fighting back with almost nothing, you know, compare it to the students that fought back and ran into the street with nothing. Um, you know, in Ukraine right now, you have women who are dropping their babies off in safe places and coming back to fight. You have women who are going up to the Russian soldiers and offering them a phone to call their mother in Russia and tell them what's going on. You have all of that. So it is as much as we don't want history to repeat itself. As you said, you have hope because the, what this has done, what it seems to be doing is uniting so many against what is going on. Oh, you're so, Putin you're, and his regime. You're so right. And, and speaking of women, um, I'll use the country of Lithuania because that's my background. Um, Lithuania lost an entire generation of men during this Soviet, you know, annexation, occupation. And now we're seeing the Ukrainian men 
are forced to stay behind. The women and children are, are fleeing. What happens to a country when they lose a, a, a large proportion of, of their men? What I'm seeing now that's so inspiring in the countries where this happened previously, Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia, Lithuania's prime minister is a woman and she was out there the other day in a flak jacket. She is training with the home guard um, as a defense. Like the previous minister of defense, the pre previous president of the country, we're seeing these incredible women and the world is seeing now what these women are possible, are, are capable of and, you know, and what's possible. And I see that in Ukraine every day on the news and I just get so choked up and fired up. And fired up. And that's the thing, because it is horrific. It's yeah. I've never seen anything like this. I mean, usually, uh, you know, you see refugees, you, who knows where they came from. And so, but here you have people who are not just refugees, but they're some of them are going back in to fight for what they believe in for the right to live their lives um, and, and oppose this unjust person who just wants to crush their spirit and have control. Yes, I'm sure you saw the story about the young female student who left the UK, was, was, is going to school and left the UK to fly back into this war zone to support her country and to support her people. And she said, well, I'm young and, you know, and I have energy and I can do this. And that gave me hope. The other thing that gives me hope is let's not forget that our previous arch enemy, Germany, who for so many decades, that was the evil empire that we were fighting is now one of our strongest allies. So, you know, we have to remember that history is cyclical um, is cyclical like this. And right now we are just, I'm so inspired and so grateful to see these examples of heroism uh, and fortitude. It's very inspiring. And you mentioned uh, one of your previous books, Shades of Grey. Mm -hmm. Isn't that now being made into a movie? Yes, thank you for mentioning that. It's been made into a film and uh, it's on Amazon Prime. It's, it's on uh, Peacock Network. It's called Ashes in the Snow. And it, it, the story is, is very uh, reminiscent of what we're seeing now, of this country that was occupied, invaded, people were deported to Siberia. And we have the character of a Soviet guard who is half Ukrainian and half Soviet and how he suffers uh, at the hands of his own regime, because he is half half Ukrainian, um, and I don't want to give too much away, no. but um, the the film itself uh, we used, you know, uh, the principal actors were from Scandinavia and the UK, but all of the extras that you see in the film are all uh, Baltic or Ukrainian. Our our crew, much of the crew was from Ukraine. It was really uh, a, a joint. Uh, and collaborative effort. And sadly, uh, we lost one of our uh, actors um, uh, who was Sasha, who was from, you know, Ukraine, and he was was killed recently in the shelling in Ukraine. And I do hope that people will watch this movie Ashes in the Snow. Um, it, it, because like I said, it's it really is reminiscent of what we're seeing today. Well, that's a, you know, um, historical fiction. Let's hope it doesn't totally repeat itself um, in, in 
so much trauma, but it does repeat itself in the Ukrainians defeating this horrible person and, you know, what he is looking to do for no reason at all. Yes. For absolutely no reason at all. So what, what advice would you give uh, someone who's looking to maybe start a career in writing, not music, writing? I'm so glad you asked this because I really wish someone would have shared this information with me uh, is to give yourself permission to fail again and again, and to understand that it takes many roads to get to a destination. It's very rare that we take one road to get where we're going. We don't. We take many roads, the car breaks down, we get lost, we pull over in a parking lot and swear and cry, (laughs) and then we get back on the road. And people seem to think that when it comes to writing, that there is some sort of magic there and that the first words that come that that come out of the pen need to be brilliant. No, they're going to be crap. You need to give yourself permission to write crap. And it's in the rewriting that the real writing emerges. And that means that it's a work ethic. Um, you, you need, you know, need to be committed to it. But if you're so passionate about the story you're telling, it won't seem like work. It will, it, it'll just seem joyous. Well, I, I agree with you as far as that goes. Um, You've done so much research. I know on this book, in fact, you have at the end of the book, um, everything that you research, plus a lot of other places where people could get more information from. Um, Anything new, any new piece of uh, history that you're looking to, that you're working on now? Oh, always. I have a list of perhaps 20 different um, pieces of hidden history, but actually my book that's coming out next is not historical fiction. It's actually nonfiction. And what I find is that at my events, the conversations about history inevitably turn to conversations about personal history. And I want to help everybody be able to unearth their own story. And I understand that not everyone's interested in writing a book or publishing a book, but I want them to be able to archive and distill their own story. And I believe that the building blocks of story are in our own human experience. There are characters, there are settings, (laughs) Um, you know? And, And so the book is called You, the Story, A Writer's Guide to Craft Through Memory. And through using our own memories and our own experiences, I'm helping writers, you know, discover, uh, go go back into the past and and archive their own history. And you never know, that could eventually be turned into a historical novel, historical fiction. I guarantee it will. Every human being has a story to tell. And your books are not just for young adults. They are for adults because most adults don't know these stories either. As we said, um, these are stories really that that need to be told and read about because it sounds repetitive, but look what we're going through now. Exactly. And I think if we can, through a book, if we can give a reader a vivid window into the past and if they connect with the character, it's, 
it's a more immersive experience. Suddenly it's, you know, hist historical facts might be sterile, but when, when we connect with a character at that moment of connection, I think our heart opens and we have the ability to care for someone we've never met and use our greatest gifts of compassion. And that makes the story more immersive. And I think we understand the history and story in a, in a deeper way. That is beyond correct. I, I really agree with that. Ruta, before we leave, where can people find out more about you? Thank you. Um, they can go to my website, rutasepetes.com. Easier. Go to historyishiding.com. And that will- oh, I love that. My website, historyishiding.com. And I'm in all the usual places. I'm on Facebook and Twitter at Ruta Sepetis and on Instagram at uh, Ruta Sepetis author and on Goodreads and all of these places. And I would love to hear from, from your listeners and interact with them. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me here today. Um, fascinating. Thank you for doing what you do and giving voice to so many women. You make the world less lonely for all of us. Well, thank you for that. Thank you for joining me today. If you liked what you heard, please share it with another person you think would be interested. And if you haven't already, please subscribe. This has been a Life of Prey production. 